I'm so glad you're here. Well, open your Bibles as we continue our study in the book of Psalms. This has been, as Dave even mentioned in his prayer, such an incredible time and a, a helpful time, I think, to our souls. And, and hopefully as well as we even open up God's Word today, we will see a, a necessary time for us to look into God's Word and to reflect on the life He's given us and all that is included in that. The year was 1644. The place was Westminster Abbey. The room was the Jerusalem room. And it was there that the greatest theological minds and biblical scholars in England, the famous Puritans, gathered together with lords and commissioners to spend five years of intense study, five years of discussion to produce a statement of doctrine true to Scripture and faithful to the gospel. By 1649, and they had completed what became the most familiar Westminster Confession of Faith that you and I are familiar with. In that creed, it's an amazing statement on the divine providence and unexpected times of suffering that God may allow to come into the believer's life. And I want to read to you a portion of what it says. It says, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts to chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts. In other words, God, our God, who has care for us, providentially cares for his children, is an all-wise, all-loving, all-powerful God who may many times see fit to pull his hand away and to allow us to undergo a time of suffering and temptation in the deep struggle of our souls. This is not a punishment upon the believer, as some may believe, but rather this is the loving hand of correction that comes upon us for our good. Why do I say that this is not a punishment that the confession is speaking of? Because we know as believers that the Lord Jesus Christ took on all the punishment for our sins on the cross. We know that punishment has already been paid, that punishment rests upon the Lamb of God. He alone endured it and He alone can pay for it. So what we call discipline of God is not punishment, but rather when God in His providence allows us to undergo these times of suffering and chastening as a part of His good and loving purpose for our lives. The confession goes on and says this, that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon Himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. Westminster Confession of Faith 5.5. In other words, God is sovereign in His providential care over us. He lets nothing come upon us that is, but which that will fulfill His good purpose for us. This is true in times of blessing as well as in times of suffering. If He permits trials and suffering to come upon us, it's because He uses these times to bring us closer to a deeper relationship with Himself. He uses those times to teach us how frail we are, how how sufficient He is, and how powerful 
He cares. And though these times of suffering, he weans us from the fleshy, temporal, man-centered things that we wrongly place our trust in, and then he trains us instead to depend upon him. I tell you that because this morning we are going to return to our study in Psalm 39. And as we do that, we're coming to a moment in King David's life that brings him face to face with what the Westminster Confession of Faith would call his season of manifold temptations and God's chastening so that he too might be able to be humbled and find himself more dearly dependent upon the Lord. And so if you're not there already, go to Psalm 39. Psalm 39, as I read the Psalm of David for the choir director for Judithan, the musical director that the psalmist is addressing. The psalmist says, I said, I will keep watch over my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will keep watch over my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. I was mute with silence. I even kept silent from speaking good, and my anguish grew worse. My heart was hot within me. While I meditated, the fire was burning. Then I spoke with my tongue. Yahweh, cause me to know my end, and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime has nothing before you. Surely every man, even standing firm, is altogether vanity, Selah. Surely every man walks about as a shadow. Surely they make an uproar in vain. He piles up riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, what do I hope in? My expectation is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions, Make me not the reproach of wicked fool. I have become mute. I do not open my mouth because it is you who have done it. Remove your plague from me because of the oppression of your hand. I am wasting away. With reproofs, you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is vanity, Selah. Hear my prayer, O Yahweh, and give ear to my cry for help. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a foreign resident like all my fathers. Turn your gaze away from me, that I may smile again before I go and am no more. This morning we come to part two of what it is that We have studied in this magnificent psalm, and I want to bring to you a a title for this message that is elongated from what I gave you last time we met with this psalm. I pray Joanne can update this new uh, title for me. Thank you. It's now The Sinner's Desperate Cry for Help in Light of Incredible Briefness of Time. Let me say that again. It sounds almost Puritan, doesn't it? She's writing quickly. The, the sinner's desperate cry for help in light of the incredible briefness of time. Because it's here in this great psalm that I just read that we're going to see how David reacted to God's chastening. The same chastening that the confession speaks of. This chastening in this context has four reactions to it. Four responses to God's discipline for sin that illustrates the believer's journey back to repentance. 
And we see here, and I'll give them to you up front, we will repeat them as is my habit to do. Verses 1 through 2, you'll see God's chastening can create a superficial silence. You'll see verses 3 through 6, God's chastening can grant spiritual perspective. You'll see in verses 7 through 11, God's chastening can produce substantial confession. And verses 12 through 13, God's chastening can promote supernatural boldness. And it's my prayer this morning for you and for all who hear this message that these four responses that came about in David's life thousands and thousands of years ago will give clarity today to us as believers as we deal with God's chastening and God's disciplining of us. So let's begin first and foremost with a review of what we covered last time in this psalm, namely our first point the first response to God's discipline of sin, and that illustrates the believer's travel and journey back to him in repentance, is number one, God's chastening can create a superficial silence. God's chastening can create superficial silence. And what do I mean by that? Well, look at verses one through two. He said, I said, I will keep watch over my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will keep watch over my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. I was mute with silence. I even kept silent from speaking good and my anguish grew. You can stop there as we think about what it is that David is saying here in these verses. God was disciplining David and he was disciplining him over sin that is not disclosed here in this psalm. He was disciplining him, and he was being silent in response to this discipline. He didn't want to add insult to injury by talking about it, and yet David says that his heart was still burning within him. You see that at the end of verse 2. So sometimes when God is merciful enough to correct us in our sin because he loves us, according to Hebrews, it tells us that our immediate reaction to that discipline might be to shut up. It might be to realize that the best thing that you could ever do when God's hand is upon you in chastisement is to refuse to compound the fracture by opening our mouth and inserting our foot. We realize that complaining or arguing is futile, so we just bite our tongues and we remain silent. But what we saw here was that Though David chose to keep his mouth shut, even though David chose to be silent, the truth is that he was dealing with that restraint just on the surface. It was a surface issue. That's why I say his first response is to this chastening is superficial silence. Why? Because you can keep your mouth shut. You can commit yourself to never allowing anyone to ever hear you expressing your sin verbally. But that is just a surface kind of repentance, if you will, because the real issue is always the heart. So though the sin that David is dealing with here is on the surface has to do with what he says is in his mouth. The reason he says that this is a sin issue underlining his speech is a whole different issue. You can convince me never to speak again. You can put your hand over your mouth and pretend that the problem is fixed, but eventually that silence will be broken And the issues of my heart will come forth. You you will hear what is moving me. You can be silent all that you want to be, but that doesn't, listen, lead you necessarily to repentance. 
That's why I call the silence, again, superficial. It might be necessary, but it's only a band-aid on the artery. So David is right, verse 1, to keep watch over his tongue and to muzzle his mouth, but there's just so much more to the story than that. Verse 9 tells us that one reason David became mute in relation to his speech is because it is you, O God, who have done this to me. In other words, done what? Created the circumstances that compel me to be quiet. You're the one that has made me be quiet. God is the one who's chastened David. God is the one who is disciplining David for sin. God is the one who has chastised him for his former sins as to discover the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of the heart, as we just read in the Westminster Confession. And therefore, any defense that he might offer to the wicked in his presence, he says in verse 1c, would only seem to blame God for what happened to him. So he just decided to keep his mouth shut. But the tactic was merely a quick fix. It's just a remedy superficially to create silence. And eventually, as you see in this psalm, David had to speak. He had to let it out. He had to make sure that what he felt in his heart was expressed with his mouth, which leads us to the next point in the psalm, namely the second reaction to God's chastening or discipline. And that is not only can God's chastening create a superficial silence, but also, number two, God's chastening can grant spiritual perspective. God's chastening can grant spiritual perspective. And we looked into this briefly last time, but I want to go a little deeper into what David says here with you today. Look at verses 3 through 6 with me and listen as I read. My heart was hot within me. While I meditated, the fire was burning. Then I spoke with my tongue. Yahweh caused me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transcendent, how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing before you. Surely every man, even standing firm, is altogether vanity, Selah. Surely every man walks about as a shadow. Surely they make an uproar in vain. He piles up riches and does not know who will gather them. Now, if you would just take a moment and kind of reflect on what it is that I just read to you, if we'll kind of think together about what's going on in David's heart here in his prayer, you'll notice that he gained some spiritual perspective, that he gained some very important perspective about life that came because in his case of the chastening of sin. Now, in other words, God came to David and God's discipline of David's sin made David look in his heart for what it was that he needed to confess. And he started to look at his life in a way that maybe, very importantly, may not have occurred had it not been for God's correction. Again, verses 1 through 2 have told us that silence for David is not always golden. Silence was only a superficial way of dealing with the sin that eventually caused this great king to just boil up inside with anguish. He tried to remain silent about the effects of God's creation. He tried to keep his mouth shut because he believed the more I spoke, the worse it's going to get, the more the wicked men around me are going to hear me, and the more they're going to blame God for what happened to me in a wrong way. 
He was afraid because he knew that it was God who brought this correction upon him. David says, you know, you have done this to me. And therefore, he believed that if he spoke, how horrible it would be that his suffering would appear to his enemies as if God had been subjecting him to his wrath and not to an expression of his love. David's wasting away was a sign that they thought not of a righteous man, but perhaps of a man that was in sin and was not really a child of the Most High. That God was cruel to him, that God was mean to him, that God represented to the world the same God that was against him and therefore they would be in error. And so what we saw in our last point, he keeps his mouth shut. He refuses to speak about his condition, but that didn't change. Again, verse 3, that his heart's on fire. My heart is hot within me. The more he meditated, it says, in other words, the more I rehearsed this situation over and over in my mind, the more it felt like he was adding additional coals to his already burning heart. His silence had a shelf life. And so it was no longer useful to him, and so he couldn't take it anymore, and he speaks. But I want you to notice here, and this is the important part in this second point, that when he does speak, he doesn't speak to the wicked who are in his presence. He's not tempted to let them know what it is that he's about to say, but instead he speaks to the Lord in heaven. He doesn't speak to the wicked on earth. He speaks to the Lord on high. And at the very end of verse 3, he says, Then I spoke with my tongue. This is not a silent prayer. This was a verbal plea with God. But what's important for us to notice here is when he did speak, he didn't talk about the weather. He didn't talk about how unfair this predicament is to him. He, he didn't talk about wanting the wicked around him to disappear, get rid of them, oh God. But instead, this breaking of his silence came about because he needed to know how much longer do I live? How much longer will I be alive? What, that's what was on his heart. He needed to know, verse 4, what was his end? What is the extent of my days? This is David's desperate cry for help in light of the incredible briefness of time. Now, of course, this prayer tells us a few things about David. Number one, it tells us that David felt as if this chastening was going to kill him. That whatever it is that God was doing was going to take his life. David felt as if he was doomed to die with whatever the form of this chastisement was. He felt as if this plague, which he speaks of, which he had, how he talks of God's discipline, had come upon him as a result of his sin, verse 10. It's going to crush him. It's going to crush me to death. And because, of course, of that condition, we know by his speaking that it was severe. The text, again, does not tell us the exactness, uh, very much like Psalm 13 that we heard this morning. The conditions of the reason are not always specific. I think that's God's mercy because he allows the believer to fill in the gaps, to be able to insert our own situation into that very uh, cause and the cry. But whatever he had done, whatever the sin was that he had committed, it was serious enough to believe that God would take his life for it. He believed that whatever had happened, whatever had occurred, that God would take his life and extinguish it. 
This is, of course, understandable because that's exactly what happened in the book of Acts, chapter 5, with Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to the Holy Spirit, and what happened? God took the lives of both of them in the church. That's what some people refer to as the very first act of church discipline. Church discipline started with death. So when you see someone whose name is called, which is a very gracious thing, hoping they'll return to salvation or return at least to repentance, it is an act of grace because the first act of discipline was death. There is a sin that can end in death. There is a sin that can end in death. There are times in our lives when our sin could be so great and God's reputation is so slandered that the Lord in His mercy allows His saints to die rather than to allow them to continue in their transgressions. Even if they repent for what they've done, even if you turn from your sin, it's called consequences. Consequences. And many times those consequences for our sin cannot be overlooked, so much so because we turn from them and God chasten us, sometimes it ends severely. When I was a new believer, 30 years ago, there was a man in our church named Zach. And I used to drive Zach to the Bible study that we attended. He didn't have a car. He lived with his mother. He was in his late 20s, but... It was an opportunity for me to serve me and some other men in the Bible study. And so we would go and take him to Bible study. And for months and months and months, it just seemed like God was working in his heart. We thought he had come to Christ and perhaps he did come to Christ. Perhaps the Lord was gracious and saved him. He was sensitive to the teaching of God's word. He would be moved in his heart when the teaching and preaching occurred. He was involved in fellowship of the saints. He was glad to be there. But in his private life, in his life behind the scenes, there was a very deep darkness, a very deep darkness that was so horrible that it manifested in the fact that he became a part of pornographic film. And he, as a result, began to draw other people from our study into that mindset because of his influence. I would meet with him. I would confront him and speak to him about his sin. It had resulted in the pregnancy of a girl not in our Bible study, but nonetheless a a woman who was not his wife. And his ways were wicked, and we spoke to him. And though Zach was on my heart and we loved him, his sin was treacherous. One day, years later, a lady from our church came to me right after the service in the worship center, and she told me that Zach had been found dead in the field, that he was somewhere in the valley, not knowing exactly how it happened. It seemed that whatever alliances that he had made, finally the darkness had overcome him and had taken his life and thrown his body away just into the field like it was garbage. His example, his testimony to those possibly was one of even what Hebrews 6 tells us. He had been enlightened. He had tasted the heavenly gift. He had been partaker of the Holy Spirit. He had tasted the good word of the Lord, the powers of the age to come, but yet he had fallen away. If he was a believer, then God had said, enough 
is enough. I no longer will allow you to stain my people. I no longer will allow you to stain my reputation and the lifestyle that you have. So now you must die, face your sin, and come to me. And even though that is true, that is a true story that still aches my heart to this day, even though God sometimes does take the life of those he loves because their sin has reached such a point of wickedness, one would doubt, of course, whether they were a believer, but it has reached such a point that the only merciful thing that God can do is to remove them from the planet. And that's because of his love. And that's only part of the story here with David that we see in verses three through six. David's not just expressing here a prayer with the desire to know how much longer he had to live because of God's discipline, but rather he was pleading with God to show him spiritual perspective about the remaining time he had in life and on this earth. Look again with me at the very end of verse 4. It says, let me know how transient I am. Let me know what is the extent of my days. David knows his life's transient. He knows his life is, 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 is just like a vapor, as I said this morning in my prayer. He knows that his life is fleeting. He already knows that many, many ways. He knows that intellectually, because his theology tells him this, his theology, knowing about God, knowing what God has revealed at that time in, in history, he knows it experientially, we all do, because we all see men and women die, children die, day in and day out, before their time, as so commonly we say. But now, the crucible of his suffering, his transcendent, his transient nature, because of his sin, has become so much more vivid to him. I understand now that my days are numbered. His acknowledgement of his short life has reached a very new meaning for him because now he's close to death. It's more real to him that death can come. So he knows his life is short. He knows it was already fleeting. So what does he do? He asks God to make that reality even more clear to himself so that he can grasp how utterly momentary this entire life is. By God's grace, suffering does that. By God's grace, suffering under the disciplining hand of God can often grant you spiritual perspective about your life that would have never happened otherwise. And that in and of itself is a gift from God. And I say that because in this prayer, please notice that David begins to answer his own question. He is both praying for insight from the Lord, while at the same time, he is confessing those truths about the life that he has and the life that he knows. He knows how transient he is. Again, suffering can do that. Prayer can do that. As we are sick with sin, when you're trapped in your mind with the consequences of your transgressions, it gains perspective. You start to see things extremely clearly. We begin to think, we begin to remember those truths that we already know. Surely he does. But when you see even in the text here, and he says, I spoke with my tongue. Yahweh caused me to know my end. What is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. The rest of the verses, five and six, 
are not an answer from God, but an answer that he already knows from his own heart from understanding revelation. Because we weren't being confronted by iniquities in life, it tends to be that the truth that we understand can lie dormant. Let me say that in a different way. Because many times our sin is not confronted by God, which may lead some people to think that we're getting away with it, that no one knows and no one is hurt, God will not be mocked. God knows exactly what's happening in your life. And so the truth that we know about the shortness of our days goes into the background. It becomes blurry. All we see before us is is the sin we're engaged in and not the Savior who will confront us. But once you are confronted, whether it's a, a, a close encounter of some kind, once you're caught in the crosshairs of God's chastening, the realities about life and death start to journey back from the recesses of your mind to the forefront of your life. And then we see, we see so much more clearly our true condition. And that too is because of God's mercy. Verse 5, behold, behold. That's a word that is generally referring to some truth either newly asserted or newly recognized. Behold, now I get it. Behold, now I understand. Behold, now I see what I had forgotten. And the question might be, what had he forgotten? Namely, that you made my days as handbreadths and my lifetime as nothing before you. What I've always known, what I knew in my heart, even in the time that I was in my sin. Again, the sin is not described. It's not specific as to exactly what it is. At the time that I'm confronted, there is by the grace of God in his chastisement a window that opens and the vision becomes clear and no longer am I foggy and now I understand exactly my state. And again, remember, God here isn't speaking to David. God is not giving David these insights. David is speaking to God and reaffirming the truth of what he already knows. But now he understands it in a whole new way. He understands it in a personal way. Now it's an intimate reality to him. This is a result of God's chastening. This is a result of God's chastening in his life because he was being disciplined for his sin. Now he could see more clearly perhaps what he always knew, but because of God's chastening, now he had a much clearer perspective about his life. John Piper, in his pamphlet, Don't Waste Your Cancer, Don't Waste Your Cancer, says this, You will waste your cancer if you refuse to think about death. We all die if Jesus postpones his return. Not to think about what it will be like to leave this life and meet God is folly. Ecclesiastes 7.2 says, It is better to go to the house of mourning, a funeral, than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. He says, How will you lay it to heart if you won't think about it? Psalm 90, verse 12, we've gone through this. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And then he says this, Numbering your days means thinking about how few there are, and that they will end. 
How will you get a heart of wisdom if you refuse to think about this? What a waste if we do not think about death, end quote. That's very powerful. That's a very powerful insight by John Piper, and that's exactly what David knew. I remember years ago, in this room, Alistair Begg was here, pastor from the Midwest, lecturing at the Master's Seminary, and he told men that sometimes, not every day, it is his practice to have lunch in a graveyard. He spends his afternoons in a graveyard. In other words, sometimes it is his practice to go and sit down among all the tombstones in a cemetery. And <laughs> I, I kind of I leaked that out, didn't I? If you're in seminary here, I'm sorry. That, that's totally true. Uh, no. Just to qualify real quick, you know, when people say seminary is cemetery, that means that's a way to get your mind filled with information, but your heart is still cold. So that hopefully doesn't happen. But he was in a cemetery, and he would sit on the grass, and he would take out a blanket, and he would sit there and look around him at the rows and rows, I think, of the veterans' cemetery as you go down the 405 in Westwood, and he would just remember to end his day thinking about the end of his days. He would go and remember that life has a clock to it and you have only so many different ticks left to it. And he was grappling, not in his case, but grappling with what might be God's discipline and what might happen if I don't change. And it's a precaution. It's a precaution to avoid this discipline. And join heirs, I really think it would be wise from time to time to see you at Forest Lawn. <laughs> I think it would be wise from time to time, not because you're dealing with any sin or God's discipline, but because that's the end on earth. That's the end for all of us. But in David's case, I want you to notice something here with me. This chastening of God not only helped him to get spiritual perspective about his own life, but he also got spiritual perspective about the lives of his enemies. The lives of his enemies. Look at verse 5b. And my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely every man, every man, even standing firm is altogether vanity, say law. Surely every man walks about as a shadow. Surely they make an uproar in vain. He piles up riches and does not know who will gather them. That's a very, very important part. God's discipline of his own life helped him not only to see his own life in perspective, but also the lives of those in the world who are wicked, who seemed as if they don't have a care in the world, who seemed as if, as the text says, they're standing firm, they're rock solid, they, they cannot be penetrated, they, they don't have any kind of, of, of influence by the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune because of the trial. Now David starts to see not just his own life and the end of it, but the whole world. 
The evil men who reproached him in verse 1 that he speaks of keeping silent before when he was silent because he's suffering, now he sees that those same men that are before him are going to suffer the same condition, but they didn't know it. The wicked seem strong. The wicked seem boastful. The wicked seem like they are pillars of unending sovereignty building their kingdoms on this earth. But now he sees them for who they truly are. He sees them as merely shadows. Shadows who have no substance. They are vanishing pieces of vanity. They are whispers that fade away as soon as they are spoken. They are puffs of steam that evaporate within seconds because regardless of what they say, regardless of what they assert in actuality, They are dead men walking. Look at the characteristics of these adversaries. Verse 5b, they are men who are standing firm like deeply rooted redwoods never to be unearthed. Verse 6a, men who walk about as if they were permanent fixtures on the earth never to go away. Verse 6b, men who make an uproar, meaning they talk loud, they make themselves large and in charge. Men who, verse 6, see, make a lot of money, and they pile up their wealth like mountains of gold, all believing that their power and prominence is a sign of their permanence. But it's not. And David says three times, surely they are a vapor of air. Surely they are shadows with no substance. Surely they are sounds without effect. They are doomed to die and to be forgotten no matter how bigger than life they seem. And perhaps that's why in verse 5 he begins this thought. We see a Selah there. You see that at the very end of verse 5, Selah. The idea for this Hebrew word according to the Old Testament Hebrew, which occurs 74 times, is for a pause. Most people think it speaks of a reflective pause, a pause to meditate on the words that were just spoken. could be a musical instruction for musical interlude of some kind. However, this Selah is an important call to each of us because we're supposed to now pause and we're to think of the shortness and the frailty of life. And in many ways, that's why we have done this entire study of Psalm 39. Selah. Because you don't know who you are and it doesn't matter who you are and it doesn't matter who you know because David says every man, every woman, every child, every person is vanity. Every single one. It matters not how powerful you are in this room this morning. It doesn't matter how protected you might think you are. It doesn't matter how high your fence is, how many weapons you own. If you have ring on your front doorstep, nothing's going to protect you. It doesn't matter. Every man, every woman will die. Though in this life, verse 6b, make an uproar. While they're living, they make an uproar. In the Hebrew, that means to make a noise, to be turbulent, to roar, to moan. 
In truth, all the people who make a loud noise are just lions who will die. Even Solomon in Ecclesiastes 9 says, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Why did he say that? A living dog? A dog was a scoundrel. A dog was a menace. A dog was, was someone or something that was just like a piece of trash with legs. He says, if it's living, it's better than a lion in all its majesty because a dead lion doesn't roar anymore. It's better to be alive and a dog than to be a lion and be dead. Case in point. In the first century, Roman Emperor Nero wrecked havoc in the Roman Empire. He burnt cities, murdered thousands of people, every member of his family. People were stabbed, burned, boiled, crucified, impaled. And though it's believed that he was the one that started the great fire that burned Rome while he blamed it on the Christians, he's dead. He roars no more. Genghis Khan was the emperor of Mongolia from 1206 to 1227. His bloodthirsty nature led many victories. He, he infested a large part of China. He killed countless people. It's believed that he and his men out of water would drink blood from horses. His army killed 15 million people in the Iranian plateau. Total about 20 to 60 million people died during his reign. He too is dead and roars no more. Ivan the Terrible, the first czar of Russia, as a kid, he used to throw animals from the top of tall structures because of his evil. Though he was intelligent, he had bouts of rage due to mental anguish. During one, he even killed his own heir to the throne. It says in history, he loved impelling and beheading and burning and strangling. So much so that in one massacre, more than 60,000 people were tortured to death. Yet Ivan died while playing chess with his friend. He roars no more. Joseph Stalin, dictator of the Soviet Union from 1922 until his death in 1953, as a young man was a robber and an assassin. For almost 30 years he reigned with terror and violence in the Soviet Union. His discussions, his decisions led to famine, killed millions. In addition to his enemies, he even killed Families of people who were fond of him. Under his rule, he easily killed over 20 million people. He once said, one death is a tragedy. Million deaths is simply a statistic. He too was hung and now is dead. He roars no more. Adolf Hitler was the chancellor of Germany from 1933 to 1945 and the Fuhrer of the Nazi party. Adolf Hitler was probably the most intelligent, creative, brutal dictator of them all. And he was responsible for the Holocaust of the Second World War. He believed that Jews were the root cause of all his problems. He wanted to eliminate them. His actions resulted in the death of over 50 million people. He was a coward and killed himself before anyone else could do it. And now he has no power, no kingdom, no voice, no authority, no nothing. He is food for the worms. And even they live no longer. They all, verse 6, piled up riches though their evil reigns and even their fortunes were given to strangers who they never knew. I could go into example after example of individuals that I even know that have storage after storage of materialism and of things that they find that are important to them as their 
health declines, and as they barely can move, but they have storages full of their gold that is eaten by moths and, and fade away and reserved for no one, for all their family is gone. What is the point of all of that? Luke 12, our Lord Jesus says it this way as he speaks of an analogy to teach this great lesson. Luke 12, 16, and he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So it is the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This came crashing down on David. The realization of all of these truths in his moments of despair started to buckle his knees and weaken his faith. And yet he cries out for help. And when he does, God grants him spiritual perspective, perspective that he would never otherwise had. Back to Psalm 39, there is so much more here to understand, so much more of God's grace that we need to look at, but our time is gone for this morning. So just to end with this thought, does this resemble you in any possible way? Maybe you are not suffering at this point because of God's chastisement. Maybe you are not under God's discipline. At least maybe that's the way you look at your life. But can you come with David and say to the Lord, let me know my end. Let me know the extent of my days. Let me know who I am before you so that I may honor you and glorify you and come to repentance and no longer live in the trash heap of the life that I have lived, hidden as I think it might be to eyes who do not see. But no one escapes you, O Lord. No one can escape your gaze. The psalm has much to teach us, and we'll learn even more next time. Pray. Heavenly Father, the sobriety of a message like this is so hard to avoid, and yet day in, day out, with all of the details and all of the busy schedules that we have, we can tuck it away. We can cease from thinking about it in the midst of all of the activities and all of the plans for the future. And yet, O oh Lord, we do ask humbly. We do ask that you be delicate with us, that you lead us to our sin away from our sin so that we might be led to repentance and that you might open our eyes to the days and the moments and the seconds that we have remaining so that we may live in a new light with repentant 
sin, with life no longer clinging to us as if it was a disease, but now living life with the fullness of joy, knowing that you, our God, have paid away and that you, our God, will rescue us. Father, I pray for those in this room even today that are struggling. There are those even here today who have lost those that they love, who are in anguish in their own hearts, and who cry out to you in the same way, help us to know, Father, the end of our lives so that we may reinvest and give ourselves more wholly to you. I pray that would be the result of a message like this. And I pray that you would give us, in the midst of all of the the issues of life, a quietness, a silence, not that is superficial, but a silence where we are weaned from this world and that we lean our head upon you, our, our God, and we ask for help to see clearly our lives so that we might be restored and forgiven and be useful to you. And we pray that that would be exactly the result of all that happens today. Bless us, Lord, not because we deserve it, but because it's an indication of your sovereign greatness. And we ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.